Welcome to another edition of Turn Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, Katie Harkin of Skylarkin, of a brand new awesome solo album, also plays in Sleaterkinney and Courtney Barnett. More on that in a second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can head over to the email address, turnitapunkpodcast at gmail.com. Com. That is run by my brother and show producer and normally guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham. Thank you, Tristan, for all the work you do, buddy. Uh, and he will get the message to me. If you want to get in touch with me directly, you can find me on various forms of social media at Left for Damien. If you want to uh, support the show, the best way to support the show is by letting everyone you know know that you enjoy this podcast. Uh, you can also support the show by heading over to patreon.com slash turned out a punk. Thank you to everyone that is um, a patron of the show and keeping this show going. Also massive thanks to Vans for coming on board all those years ago and saying, just do what you do, Damien, book the guests you want to book and, and go for it. And I have, and they are still here. So thank you so much to them for that. And, uh, that's it. Oh, there's also a Facebook page and an Instagram page, which are both at turned out a punk. I'm on various forms of social media at left for Damien and, and that's it. You know, I really screwed up my flow there, but you know, it's been, it's been a while. I'm sorry. There's been such a gap between episodes. I was on such a good streak of just churning them out, but you know, I was, I had bad internet and it was a, it was a nightmare, but anyway, I'm back. I'm back. And what, what a big one to come back with too. My friend, Katie Harkin, who I'm a huge fan of her new record is awesome. Harkin, uh, you can find it, uh, on, you know, wherever you find music right now, uh, wherever you are. You know, if you're listening to this while we're still under lockdown, wherever you're able to get music right now, but it's on her own label, Hand Mirror. Uh, so check that album out. But she's also uh, from the incredible band Skylarkin and plays in Sleaterkinney and Courtney Barnett and someone that I've met over the years, you know, a few times now and someone I've always been a big fan of and someone that, you know what, why not get them on the show? And so with the new album, it made perfect perfect sense for this to happen now. So I'm not going to blather on anymore. I'm going to let you sit back, relax, and enjoy Katie Harkin on Turned Out a Punk. Katie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, as I was just telling you off air, I think your new record is fantastic. And we have a lot of nerding out to do because you're from my favorite city, in the world just about and and your music's amazing but i gotta start this off the way they all start off which is katie how'd you get into punk well i grew up in leeds as you know one of the greatest cities in the world but the i was in cyprus when like alternative music kind of cracked my brain open for the first time my my dad's irish and my mum's english but my english grandparents moved to cyprus when i was a kid mm -hmm. and my granddad had this like really shady satellite dish that could get every TV channel so that they could keep watching EastEnders. They could keep up with the the British soap operas that they loved. But crucially, it meant that they had MTV, which I did not have at home. So I remember being a little kid and being in their living room and putting MTV on and a Smashing Pumpkins video coming on uh, for Tonight Tonight and my little like eight-year-old mind being like, what is happening here? And we got back to the UK and I got my mum and dad to take me into HMV and I bought the CD single and it kind of just sat alongside all of the other like pop compilations that I had for, for the longest time. 
but that was like the piece of alternative culture that I reverse engineered my like guitar knowledge through, you know, until I got to punk, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Cause you know, since doing this show, I've learned that there is this punk connection and, and James had a punk band beforehand. So even in the smashing pumpkins, there's like blips of this punk rock thing. And, and it's like what you said, you almost have to go there and, and reverse engineer your way back from it to, yeah. uh, you know, put, yeah, put it all together. Yeah, totally. Cause it's like, well, where did, where did this come from? You know? And, and, you know, growing up, obviously after the, the birth of punk and also growing up in the UK, there's a lot of that kind of pre-internet detective work that, you know, I, I loved, <laughs> totally loved. I guess going back before that, you mentioned those pop compilations. Where were you, you know, discovering music and hearing it before that trip to Cyprus. Yeah. Well, there's the kind of music taste that you don't really get to choose, which is the stuff that, you know, you heard in the backseat as a kid. And the things that um, my dad really liked was Prague and <laughs> okay. 80s female pop vocal. So, which like, you've heard my record, yeah, right? Yeah, definitely. That makes <laughs> like, sense. It kind of makes sense. And then in my mum was... My mum was into like English folk, which I wasn't as into, but the Beatles, which is like, you know, the reason there was a guitar in the house was because she had a Beatles songbook and like a nylon string guitar. And the first time I ever performed was me and my friend Joe Corrado doing a version of Help in geography class for a reason I can't remember, but she sat behind the chair and popped out and sang Help. But yeah. So did they play or is it just something that was, you know, in the house? No, it was just it was just still in the house. Yeah, my my parents um, met at medical school, and they're both very scientifically minded person. And you know, they had a daughter that ended up going to study art and like be in bands, and um, was yeah, very different. Going back to that trip to Cyprus, though, um, would you go to Cyprus often to visit your grandparents? Yeah, yeah, we would. It was like you know, especially for a little kid, it felt like a really long way. Um, and uh, yeah, I remember coming back and and looking. You land in in Leeds Bradford Airport, which is on top of the moors, and it feeling incredibly green. You know, it probably being the first time I'd been somewhere that was like genuinely hot. I love flying in that airport so much. You know, um, it, it's funny you mentioned earlier that there's not really a CBGBs in in Leeds, but there is, right? Like you know, with yeah. with the Fenton, you know, there's just all the bands that met there, Gang of Four and. Uh, scruddy polity and all this. Yeah, absolutely. And there's also a thing about Leeds and Yorkshire in general where there's a kind of like, what do you want a medal? Like feeling of um, like anti-pride <laughs> in a way, like not to be too much of a show off. So, yeah. you know, I am I think I actually played a gig in the Fenton before I knew who Gang of Four were. Like, I think my, introdu my introduction to Gang of Four was somebody in the Fenton pointing to their table and being like, that was the Gang of Four table back in the day. And me, like, <laughs> being a teenager in a guitar band, being like, who? Whereas in Manchester, they, you know, it, it's very much like sort of cultural currency uh, worn on its sleeve and same for Liverpool. Whereas um, Leeds has kind of been more, as you say, like about collectivism and I, th I think it's it's been very beneficial for the city in the long run because, you know, I've got friends in lots of different bands from Leeds and there isn't really a Leeds sound in the best way possible. Um, it's allowed for, like, more individual bands to to arise because because of that, you know. And, you know, we, we don't have CBGBs, but we do have the Brudenell Social Club. 
You must have played there. Oh, we played there before, and uh, I think they charged us a lot of money for breaking one of the benches there one time. <laughs> well, you know, you come to Yorkshire. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and you break our stuff. What are you doing? <laughs> I learned a lesson that day. But to be fair, I did get jumped on by a lot of Yorkshire people. And I think the collective weight of us in that collective spirit was what actually wound mm, up mm-hmm. breaking the bench, you know, so it's not. That really. sounds like a, that sounds like a lead gig. Like, <laughs> I went to, I went to uni in London and like, I was genuinely shocked by the crowds. I was just like, no one's, no one's hurt. <laughs> What's happening? <laughs> yeah, no, I think like the first two tours we did in the UK, we were based out of Leeds on on both of those things, and uh, those were the wildest shows. Oh, yeah. Like I got Spirit of the Drum Kit and, and all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had played the Fenton like three times before I, you know, read Rip It Up and Start Again and realized like, oh, my gosh, this is the venue that they're talking about. We've played here like all these times. There's like mm-hmm. no plaque, no no uh, indication at all of what had gone on there in the historical significance <laughs> yeah, of this place. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's um... – it's not, it's not the best at showing off uh, in in that way. But you know the stuff that we inherited, like growing up in the north of England, loads of the venues are old working men's clubs. Every single rehearsal space I ever had was like in a drafty old mill building. Um, so that like collectivism is part of our industrial heritage, as much as the. You know, these these buildings that are seen as like an eyesore and a burden when they're actually like a cultural gold mine. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. Like, well, even going back to like the Who live at Leeds, like the the rock history in, in, you know, your town, Mm -hmm. that town, Mm -hmm. it's just, it's just so steeped in it. It's just, it's it's everywhere when you walk around. Yeah. Every dad in Leeds says he was at live at Leeds. (laughs) Like I've been in that room. It's not that big, you know. No, not um, at all. But yeah, that would be that would be what people would would know Leeds for. But like where the Brunel Social Club is, it's in um, this this area of Leeds where there's a lot of of back to back houses, a lot of you know housing um, originally built for workers, and now um, there's a long suffering local population who put up with the uh, the students who live there now. Um, <laughs> But, you know, someone once told me it's the biggest concentration of, of young people in Europe because they're all living in these, you know, affordable houses that have mm. got a basement, um, you know, that you can have a band practice in. And yeah. the Harold, the Harolds, which are that estate you can see, like, directly next to the Brudenell. Mel B from the Spice Girls grew up there for part of her childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Henry Rollins lived there at some point. That's another Leeds legend. Whoa. Don't quite know how. And then... Every single band I know from Leeds has lived there at one time. Like my old band had a, a music video shot on the streets there. And it's just, um, you know, it, we're all just living on top of one another and, yeah, breaking benches, as you say. It would be such a unique place to grow up because, you know, I think specifically in terms of scene building, every couple of years kids would be leaving because, you know, it's it's like a university town, right? Like there's new kids. Yeah coming in yeah and that was that was like you know going through high school and and not finding people that I felt like saw eye to eye with me in terms of like making music it was in my last year of high school that I met a bunch of people who were going to the art college in Leeds like through going to gigs um and like 
for like my last term of high school and I remember you know all I'd wanted to do up to that point was to go to London so I could like go and see gigs and then finally I'd like found people who actually like you know wanted to talk about these bands with me and I had to leave and I remember like crying my eyes out (laughs) when they threw me in this leaving party and um but those you know a bunch of those people are still still in bands making music Matt from Dinosaur Pileup and Tom from Pulled Back by Horses and Lindsay who's in Magic Mountain and all three of them were in Mother Volpine together you know it's it's just a very um very fertile crowd yeah like it always amazed me how many people over there were like in bands you know like Coming from Toronto where, you know, there were a lot of people going to shows, but mm. maybe not all of them were, were playing music, you know, to, to being over there. Maybe it's because of the basements you mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, everyone having access to a basement, you know, they, you might as well start a band at that point. Yeah. And as I say, there's like tons of mills, you know, as long as you can um, yeah plug the leaks and you don't mind that the canal's frozen, you know, you can, <laughs> you can deal with it. But I mean, also as a kid, like I've got to say, like going to Leeds Fest was huge like going to Leeds Fest is like the highlight of my whole year and Leeds is the counterpart to Reading Festival um and like kind of overshadowed by Reading like Reading is where all the press go and then Leeds like it was just (laughs) I mean the first time I went to Leeds Fest the riot police turned up that's like what Leeds Fest was like when I was a kid I remember walking in and there was a tree that was covered in toilet paper and walking out and someone had set that toilet paper on fire and the tree was on fire and the police helicopters were like and there was exploding tents because people had set gas canisters on fire and like my friend's like friend got like pushed onto a broken tent by like a renter cop and like it was like true chaos and I just loved it and I would I would beg my parents to let me go every year and you know sit in a muddy field for three days and like watch bands like it was heaven it's funny you bring that up because yeah like I always wondered why Reading was the one that got all the hype but Leeds was the one that was wild yeah you know like Leeds was the one that you wanted to go to is it proximity to London with Reading well yeah and I again my history is a little shaky but I think that's the original one because it was maybe a jazz festival to start off with or something but also writing I remember when I first went it's like a very constrained kind of site it's on like a sort of it's a much smaller site whereas like Leeds Fest is in Yorkshire and it's this like crazy you know even when it's moved it's just fields and fields in the countryside outside of uh, outside of Leeds and um yeah just so muddy and you know so many fires and so many fires. I remember <laughs> I remember like I think it's really toughened me up for music festivals though like going to other music festivals that people thought were like difficult to play or like disgusting <laughs> or like <laughs> I was like what are you talking about like nothing's exploded yet this is fine yeah because it's leads right where like the big tradition is everyone's supposed to burn their tents at the end of the weekend yeah i mean it's not great it's not a great thing to do you know but it's <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah they haven't they haven't you know I, I i don't remember them calling the right police for quite a long time and but but just in terms of like being a teenager and being like set off into this like wild land where also 
I could see bands because, yeah, like the drinking age in the UK is 18 and I was a tall girl and it was easier for me to get into gigs and stuff, but it wasn't guaranteed. So being like 13, 14, like technically those were the first shows that I ever went to, you know, at that festival. Um, so that that was just magic. And like me and all my mates would would, would absolutely love it. Well, there's there's also like an accessible element to it in that there was a local band competition. So like there would be people I could actually talk to or see at another show later who had been on the stage at Leeds Fest. You know, it, it had that like um, accessibility element that was sort of demystifying in a way that was really powerful. Yeah, like going to those festivals and seeing it, it's it's just incredible, like the, the strength of the partying youth culture that's on display at these things, just, just kids like living life with, mm-hmm. with like reckless abandon and just, you know, um, you know, to get to see it on display, it, it's, it's, you know, you hear about other festivals, you see it at other festivals, but, but there's something different about those two for me. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's, it, there's just, there's just something really special as well in like a pre-streaming era to be able to just wander into a tent and not know who the band is, but have a great time, you know? Yeah. And like the booking, there's always like weird bands that played that festival um, over the years. There's always like one or two, like super interesting bands, you know, yeah. like I, I wish I had seen Leatherface play it all those years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And they've, they've certainly like got more diverse as the years have gone on and like, nothing's perfect there's still not enough women at any of the major mainstream you know music festivals mm-hmm. but you know that's a whole other that's a whole other podcast but as you say yeah it wasn't exclusively a rock festival so like i saw saul williams there at like 12 noon uh in a in a poetry tent i saw mf doom play to like 15 people <laughs> to the point where like i as a young woman was so embarrassed like i went over and like spoke to him to like just be like thank you so much for coming you know those those moments <laughs> where you feel like you have to apologize for like the place that you're from oh yeah because there's like no one there and you're a genuine legend and he gave me a hat which i still have so that's awesome yeah it was very awesome and no wonder he just stopped showing up to get oh, well that's the other thing maybe it wasn't mf doom <laughs> <laughs> or that's when he decided to start pulling that stunt like at that show I know, I know. Again, you know, I'm sure there was a lot of press at the Reading one, and then there was like me and my mates at the Leeds one, maybe. <laughs> yeah. But it's also those festivals are just so big, and the conflicts are so immense. Like we were one time fucked up playing against the Pogues and Rage Against the Machine. Whoa. Yeah, like I wouldn't have been there to see fucked up. I would have, <laughs> I would have gone over to see those bands instead. <laughs> um, but I guess yeah, like, some of the clashes are brutal, really brutal. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, but I guess because you live so close, like, would you stay there in such a hellish campground? Or no, I would go home and come back because I lived close enough that I could do that. And I would camp, but we again, this was something that was like earth shatteringly amazing because I grew up in North Leeds. I had friends that lived in the villages that were close enough to the site that they gave them like apology tickets for the noise and like people pissing in their front gardens and stuff. (laughs) Yep. So we could camp in like the VIP camping area, um, 
which again was just like the best thing that ever happened. So I didn't, again, <laughs> I didn't get, I didn't do it the first year because I was 13 and my parents didn't let me. And then that was like the year that the riot police came. So they weren't very keen on letting me do it again. And then managed to wangle through like, again, the least punk rock connections possible, like villages <laughs> having <laughs> access to like something. I mean, I suppose it must happen for the villages near Glastonbury as well, but yeah. like, you know, and there must be so many residents that were like, absolutely not. I don't want these. But me and my friends were like over the moon that this was a possibility. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, very, very formative. And I mean, saw like so many, so many incredible artists there, like PJ Harvey and Deftones and Distillers and Queens of Stone Age. And yeah, just so many. Going back before that, you know, you're obviously 13 when you're going to the show, so you're pretty young. But did you go to any shows before you went to that first Leeds? That was, no, that was the first one. I mean, I went to see the Backstreet Boys on a, a birthday party for my friend Charlotte when I was 10. Um, but no, that. And then the next concert I went to after that was on the Smashing Pumpkins farewell tour, first farewell tour. <laughs> um, so I think I was 14 by that point, maybe. And it was Halloween. And they played for three hours and then in the end they did like an encore where they dressed up as uh, Manchester celebrities like David Beckham and Posh Spice and stuff. So I just thought that's what a, a gig was. I thought it was like, <laughs> you know, three hours long. And then like the next one I went to and it ended after 45 minutes. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's only a certain type of artist that's able to put off the, uh, you know, the concert as a play. Yeah. You know, costume changes are a lot to get away with. Yeah, definitely. But I got, I, I definitely, you know, then I had the appetite for it, but I didn't necessarily know. I like, I had some friends at school that definitely wanted to go to gigs with me, but, you know, there's also lots of really fantastic record stores in Leeds and going into Jumbo Records and going into Crash, like, that was really important. And I picked up a flyer for um, Manifesto, which was like a feminist collective at the time. Um, and I met, like a couple of the girls from that and like we'd take the train to Bradford to go to the one in 12 club which was like an anarcho-punk club mm -hmm. um again like so many places in the north of England like all tied around you know industrial decline and the the minor strikes and and things like that but just that was really mind-blowing and I thought I was really rebellious like telling not telling my parents I was going to Bradford you know the next town over <laughs> and then coming back um but yeah it, that was really formative well, yeah what an amazing club you know one in 12 is like you know obviously completely different than CBGB's but still that idea of just generation after generation of punk band coming out of this almost punk dedicated venue um is it still around or is it still around i wonder mm, that's a good question i would really hope so i would really hope so but it's the same as like the commonplace which is now like wolf chambers in leeds that it was another um the sort of the, the venues that would be classed as like membership clubs because they were collect you know and you could get in if you were underage in some of them and um, again, that's part of that like industrial collectivism heritage that at the time, like that's just what there was. And but as I've grown up, I've come to like really, really value that that there has been like a kind of inbuilt underground that's been, um, yeah, thanks to the heritage of of the region. Yeah, like I actually lived in England for a year. 
Um, oh. and yeah, like uh, just in East Sussex and uh, it, it, at a Canadian university there. Oh. There's like, yeah, Canadian university for all Canadian students. Oh, wow. uh, but I noticed that when I was there, it really felt like punk and hardcore had settled more in the north or at least, huh. you know, the type of punk and hardcore that you're describing, like a DIY, um, a just collective uh, spirit. I don't know. It, it just it felt like mm. going up north to Liverpool and and, and, and uh, York and, and places like that. Like I experienced that mm. a lot more than I did around uh, East Sussex. It's also, you know, just what what there was in a way like, you know, those are the shows that we went to because that's what there was. Like the bigger shows were all in Manchester if they were in the North. Mm -hmm. Like there was an arena there. Like Leeds has only just got an arena and it's not a huge, huge arena. Um, so Leeds definitely didn't have like the bigger venues. So that would be like begging parents, can we get a lift to Manchester who's, whose mum would be willing to drive us or like even to Sheffield. And um, so that you know these these venues yeah they were like punk and diy but they were also like what what we actually had you know <laughs> um so it it was something that i've i've come to value but at the time yeah i was absolutely trying to get into a union in london so that i could go and see more music because i felt like i was spending so much time like traveling to see <laughs> to see bands but that totally that totally changed um really with like the Arctic Monkeys, you know, when they they were the sort of band that meant that A&R people would actually, like, get on trains and come to the north of England because there was this sort of gold rush after that um, for people trying to, like, totally cash in on their success. But before that, it was all like, oh, you're, you're a band from the north. You have, to, you have to come to us. You have to come to London if you want any kind of exposure. I remember, I remember the rumor going around Leeds that there was like some A and R coming up from London. You know, it was that much of a news story that somebody would be coming from London to <laughs> us. Whereas my experience of like being in a band from the north was, you know, we'd get it together to find a London gig every couple of months, and every time we would go down, we'd be with the same bands who would have had like a different name and a and a different haircut but it was the same people, you know, the kind of turnover for, for bands at that time, all trying to like ride that wave was like really staggering. Yeah. With that Arctic, with the Arctic monkeys, like I don't think it ever really hit here in the same way, but I remember at the time, you know, reading about it in, in British press and stuff, mm. it, it was, it was huge, right? Like it was like a signing frenzy for this band. Like they kept just, bidding up and up the uh the, the dollar amount it's i mean it was really a crazy time to to witness and to have you know the strange privilege of of being in a band that was not seen as um one of those profitable lad bands by default um because yeah i'm, I'm kind of skipping ahead but i started a band called Skylarkin in my first term of university when I was 18 and my friend Nesta who I'd known from um, bands in Leeds as a teenager well we were both still teenagers but he was visiting London with his family uh, and staying in a hotel down the down the road from my uni halls and there was a drum kit in the basement so I Emerson messaged him and said there's a drum kit here we should we should have a go um, 
and we we started a band and yeah I thought I want to get a seven inch in in jumbo in Leeds and and that was that was why <laughs> had you like done any bands in Leeds before you moved to London for university that was my first band that I started I was in like different bands with like other lads no I wasn't in a in a band with any women until I started my own band um but that was Skylarkin was my first band that like I started but I was in a bunch of different bands I think the first one that I was in we just did covers I was I was maybe like 16 I was 15 when I saved up to buy my first guitar so I must have been around 16 by the time I'd figured it out enough to like play with other people and I yeah I found this band on a message board uh, of like with boys my age and we did like Nirvana covers and Weezy covers and Blind by Corn and the one of them was the moderator on an AFI message board I remember that just for the for the time and they threw me out of the band because I suggested that we start writing our own songs (laughs) (laughs) really as far as I could tell I think it was like he wanted me to start learning this AFI song I was like why don't we write our own song and then because he was the moderator he was really offended I was like but we could write our own songs and then because I didn't go to school with any of them I went to an old girls school I remember being passed a note in class and one of them had a sister a couple of years below me um, and they'd somehow like passed this note through my school that was like, you're out of the band. <laughs> That's how they told you you were out of the band? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Devastating. That's one of the worst band dismissals I've, I've ever heard of. Like <laughs> getting your little sister to pass someone a note to tell them they're out of the band. It's, it's so. <laughs> yeah. I should have kept it. Really? Yeah, I could yeah. imagine, though, at the time, that's probably the last thing you wanted to do. No. But it'd be fun to look back on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it builds character, doesn't it? I guess, but wow. <laughs> like, you know, what, what a band. Like, we got it all figured out. We're just going to do the same circuit for the rest of our <laughs> lives, playing these same cover songs. Oh, I mean, I don't think we ever played a show. We just, like, played cover songs. But, yeah. But the, then I was in a band with Nestor... I joined a band that he was in so that's how I knew him but the the first like songs and the band that I started that was like my own vision was yeah Skylarkin when I but you know I was so so fresh into London then I'd only been living there for a couple of weeks and Nesta was still 15 so everything we did we had to like work around my uni and his school so it was all in the holidays and like when we went to America for the first time, obviously like he was underage and yeah, we had to deal with all the stuff that young bands have to deal with. So I guess Skylarkin would have been the first band you would have played live with then I imagine, right? I played live with bands in high school, but never like my own project. Like, you know, but Skylarkin, I'm trying to remember what first show was in a pub in Leeds called Carpe, Carpe Diem. It doesn't exist, like most people's first first gig stories. Um, and then, yeah, we would just like, they, they came down on the train and we'd try and like carry our shit on the tube to do gigs in London. And um, yeah, it's just, it's just really funny to still be talking about like a band I started as a teenager. <laughs> yeah, but like look at what you accomplished as a teenager. Like Scarlarkin went 
a lot further than most teenage bands that I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like which is just just mind blowing. Like as I say, we started in the basement of my student halls because there was a drum kit there, which which speaks volumes about access. Really, like it just shows you what a difference it can make for young people to have access to instruments. Like even if it's just like it's there. Like I taught myself to play drums on that drum kit um because it was there and because I wanted to you know and I I had the time and the luxury of the time of it but um yeah it's it was like the MySpace era so we like posted demos on MySpace and yeah my goals were get a seven inch in jumbo and like maybe one day play a gig in another country and before we'd put the seven inch out a promoter in Sweden found us on MySpace, sent us a message saying, do you want to come to the baser in Stockholm and open for another band? <laughs> and we'll fly you out and put you up. And this is this is what, you know, Swedish arts funding is like. It's yeah. like, do you want to fly out to Sweden, not even for your own show, but like to be the support band for another, for another band? Um, which was, yeah, just absolutely mind-blowing and, um, we went out and it was um, 1990s, which is a couple of the, the Yummy Fur. It was the, the band they had after that. And um, yeah, that was that was just cr- insane. Just truly mind-blowing. Like it was one of our, our, our bandmates' like, first time on a plane. You oh, know? oh yeah, I can only imagine. Um, and and how, how long into the band is that if you don't even have, you know, your first seven inch done? Yeah, I, I, we hadn't. We hadn't done a proper tour. We couldn't have done a proper tour. Yeah. I think our first tour was in 2008 with Los Campesinos in another half term, like a, a spring break, I think. Um, so that was, yeah, that was wild and just shows how revolutionary like bands being able to um, put their music online was and is. Yeah, you brought up access and, and how important access is. I've had, you know, so many bands on the show from Sweden that were part of that big Swedish music explosion that happened. And um it's yeah, it's it's like um amazing, you know, they're talking about having like state funded uh, rehearsal spaces with instruments Good that they Lord. could use. <laughs> <Yeah>. Wow. Oh. <laughs> All right, Canada. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> true, true. It is there in Canada, but you know, like I think like anything else in this world it becomes about who gets access to these things. Mm. And uh, that's where it gets a little dicier. Yeah, totally. But, you know, the point remains, it's like it leaves an indelible mark. Like oh, yeah. It, yeah. it makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. It really, yeah. Well, like yeah. you're saying, even with MySpace, you know, like you no longer had to rely on getting into this this music industry. Like, you know, as a, yeah. a, a young band, you, yeah, you just put your music online. Yeah, yeah. which is just just really bonkers and i remember wichita the label that um skylarkin ended up putting three records out with um you know they asked us to support broken social scene great canadian band (laughs) yeah um in sheffield um i think so they could see us play essentially but you know that was a show that we all already had tickets to and um that was all that was all through myspace yeah, well, it's it's funny you bring up um, Broken Social Scene because that's a band that I think really, really benefited from being able to get their music out of the local scene 
because they had been slugging out for years in projects that no one cared mm-hmm. about, you know? And it, yeah, it wasn't until they got that international love that they kind of, they kind of broke back here. Mm, interesting. Yeah, there's definitely like an era of American and, and Canadian bands like coming to the UK to kind of get the, get the kudos and go back again. Um, but, you know, we, we totally, we totally benefited from that. You know, my technique was just to absolutely hound local promoters, which again was the benefit of like living in a, in a Northern city in a way, you know, bands would come over to do their like London press show and then some, some, uh, what do they call them? Regional shows or this, <laughs> this provincial shows. There's like a really condescending term that like agents and stuff people use for shows in the UK outside of London, like anywhere else in the entire country. Um, but anyway, there would be these, these bands coming through and I would just figure, and I, this, this is a tip that you can use now <laughs> still, if you can do someone's job for them, it's more likely that it's actually going to happen. So my thinking was like, if I just volunteer as, as a support band for like every single band that I like that's coming through Leeds, like something's going to stick. And, you know, for a large part, it worked. And then we ended up, you know, people would pick up on that. Um, like we got to play with the gossip, um, which for me was like so mind blowing. Um, and that was right around the time when I suppose it was a, a similar a similar situation, you know, they as we played with them in a pub in Leeds and then by the that summer or that next summer they were on the main stage at Leeds Fest like it when they just went stratospheric in the UK yeah they totally blew up in the UK I remember Enemy used to do that coolest people in the world list and there was one year that Beth was the coolest person in the world like oh really yeah look like at anyone it. yeah um I mean, we're like, we're like, yeah, we know. <laughs> we knew that in the pub. <laughs> it's one of those things, though, that like a lot of bands mess up that, you know, you were doing. You got to be out there. You got to like make yourself known. Otherwise, you're just going to be like every other band and, and wind up just kind of blending in. Yeah. And I think not blending in and then not being like a quote unquote lead sound to fit into was beneficial for us in the end. And, you know, we're such a young band. We're learning on the job in every way possible, including like just learning how to be emotional beings. Um, and you know, that, that was such a big part of, of the sort of community and opportunities that I was actually able to have for example Wild Beasts who are a band that I ended up touring with um, for a whole record playing in their band we got put on the same bill as them constantly and our two bands didn't really sound anything alike but we were in the sort of category of well they're both a bit weird and people seem to like them so we'll put them together bill you know yeah like an anti-category almost yeah yeah and and that was like actually incredibly beneficial and you know I sort of touched on the the like post-arctic monkeys gold rush and I know guys that got like six-figure advances whose albums never came out because they got shelved whose like 20s were kind of stolen from them in that respect because they were in these like horrific um record label clauses that they couldn't put any of the music out and the music that they did make had been shelved and you know I knew people like young men in their 
early 20s who, you know, their publishing company decided it wasn't a good time for them to be touring. So they were just like sat at home being depressed. Whereas, you know, we'd bought, we were struggling cash wise, but we'd bought an old post van and we were doing every, every show that we could. And, you know, I kind of had made a career out of not being a careerist because it meant that I was then free to like jump in the van and collaborate with other people, which like has truly opened up the world for me in ways that I couldn't have possibly imagined when, you know, it just started with the ambition to play music every day, uh, as, as small and huge that is at the same time. But, um, the fact that we weren't sort of restricted in any way and that we managed to stay a sort of DIY band, um, I'm, and it was really tough and we were really resilient, um, and we managed to do a lot as teenagers uh but i'm i'm grateful that it happened the way it happened yeah totally like i've had a bunch of people on recently and i've only come to realize this recently uh what a hard mm-hmm. not so fun place it can be to be uh, in a young band in london mm-hmm. and just how music industry centered it is like we had i had someone on the show who told me that their manager used to make them watch footage of themselves playing afterwards Ugh. i know Ugh. Could you imagine? Oh, that is just horrific. Like, like the worst thing ever. Wow. Like a performance review. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, performance Ooh. review. Exactly. But it, but it's like, it goes to what you're saying. Like, there are these managers and publishers and and just people that this is an industry for. And they're just looking to, to make the next buck that they can. So they'll have like... Uh, like 25 arctic monkeys just waiting on the shelves just just hoping that one of them one of them takes and gets popular and they can ride that yeah yeah and you know and to which Taz credit that was you know that was why we went with the independent independent label like we did and i i did have a, a few conversations because i was in i was in uni in london and the band was in leeds and i'd be traveling back and forth so i would end up like meeting with people and like I do remember <laughs> again this will show how young I am some guy music industry guy taking me out for a coffee I had an orange juice because I didn't drink coffee yet um and him telling me about this like girl that they'd signed called Lily Allen and would I was I like thinking of a pop career and I was like I'm telling you about the band that I'm in like you know I was trying as much as I could to not be like picked out as the only girl in my band and then like there was you know there was multiple conversations that were just like okay so so this is going to be your pop career and I was like no mate like come and see it's actually listen to our music like Wichita is such a cool label you know like uh, I only really met Mark the one time but what a range of bands on there from like Block Party mm-hmm. to Los Campesinos to mm-hmm. the Bronx to you know it just it just it seems like a, a label that just just kind of loves music and and <laughs> it would be a really I don't know it seems like it would be a really positive place to be a musician and they're not going to try and force you to be the next Lily Allen if you don't want to be yeah you're free to be yourself this way it seems I love I love Lily Allen it's just not oh, what I was trying to do yeah, yeah for sure yeah just, absolutely it, it was just part of the frustrations of like me you know I started off it was it was me and my friend Lindsay and Nesta and then it was me and my friend Doug and Nesta for a long time and yeah like I was trying first to be seen as a band and not to be seen as like you know the girl in the band obviously uh, for the longest time but yeah Wichita was a really 
really fertile environment to be in. And the first time I ever did a bus tour, it was with the Savvy Fab and Cloud Nothings. Mm. And the three bands is like, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the, the dream of rock and roll excess to, to do a, a bus tour. Yes. But we had three bands crammed on one bus <laughs> and it was um, Cloud Nothings first time in Europe. Uh, and then, yeah. And then we had done like van tours of Europe and then obviously like the Savvy Fab were like, grown people and we were sort of the uh, the like yeah it was it was pretty feral and our friend pete was doing front of house until managing all three bands so it was like the most punk rock like version of a of a bus tour i remember we played this venue in paris and it was one of those streets where the street is like one car wide and there's a parked car on either side kind of thing mm -hmm. so whenever we were going to load the bus we were going to have to stop traffic and there was this big, it was like a classic disco loadout. There was this big like queue waiting to get into the club after we played. And um, so we just had to like get the bus driver to pull around the corner, stop traffic. Um, and we loaded all the shit. And Tim somehow had a magician's costume. And he just like went and distracted the crowd. So no one like stole our shit as we were loading by doing like, fake out magic tricks on people like he didn't have any like actual tricks but he's obviously such a you know a trickster um that was yeah that was pretty incredible wow what an incredible tour too like you know <laughs> I, I love all those bands um but i'm gonna bring back to the thesis of the show because i have to right no, yeah um but you're all punk bands you know mm -hmm. every single band kind of came out of punk rock so it's awesome that even at that you know massive bus level of touring you're still a bunch of punk rockers on the road you know <laughs> do, doing it van style yeah yeah definitely i just had something pop in my head that's like a total left turn but from like thinking of um like being exposed to punk rock shoot like the tony hawk soundtracks were really influential yes i think definitely has anyone talked about them on the show before uh, it, it's funny because it's very much a generational thing like for some waves of people it's it's devo on saturday night live mm. for other people it's like green day when green day played woodstock mm. but for like a whole generation it's definitely the tony hawk soundtrack right because that thing was like such a, a watershed like so many bands were brought to you yeah and it in turn brought a whole generation because that was like, uh, like, t like two thousand ninety nine kind of time. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm guessing. So yeah, again, like I was the perfect age for it, like thirteen, and thirteen, fourteen, and yeah, there's just there's just no better like way to indoctrinate a child than to like play the same songs again and again while they're playing a video game again and again, <laughs> like sitting inside, you know, <laughs> it was a great, but not only like punk rock, like there's like Del the Funky Homo Sapien and yep. like exhibit and stuff. And, um, in terms of like, yeah, things in a pre-internet and I had a lot of DVDs, like thinking about it, I had a lot of, um, like there were these Jules Holland compilations and there was a later louder that had at the drive-in um, playing and just like all of the other bands being really perplexed watching them. Like I feel like maybe it's Robbie Williams or someone. I'll have to rewatch that. Um, but, and then being really obsessed with at the drive-in and like trying to find the same guitars. And like, I remember my first year at uni, 
again, I guess just before YouTube, um, like waiting for their live performances to download. <laughs> and it would take like overnight, like trying to download like one video of, of At The Drive-In. And I remember like I ended up playing on David Letterman with Slade Kinney, which was batshit crazy. But I also didn't realize as a British person for the longest time that he was a comedian which sounds really strange to say, but I only knew him as like the person on like that hosted the show that the musicians played on. Like I only knew from searching for like somebody playing on David Letterman. So it could have been like a politics show for what I knew, <laughs> or like an arts show. Um, yeah. It was just like, I knew the names of American talk show hosts because that was like how I would find like live performances of bands that I wanted to watch. I think it's, probably the same here you know in canada imagine in america too like i remember watching tv and trying to figure out how the guy from squeeze has a talk show right like right. jules holland how does this guy have a talk show he was yeah. like cool for cats <laughs> and stuff like that was actually was that at the driving performance on jules yeah. holland yeah yeah oh yeah it I, rem yeah. I think i remember watching it it seemed like it was such a a bizarre setup for a show what a unbelievable performance though like one of those legendary performances i guess they're one of those bands that you put a camera in front of them and, and they were gonna they were gonna make some good tv each time yeah that i mean then it it remains like still a um it's also it's very unique like if you've never seen the show or if you've seen it like from abroad as i might have done like chopped into segments what is interesting is that the bands play in the round mm -hmm. so you've got like five or six artists that are sort of trapped in the room together for the duration of the show so you know you you get to also watch like bands watching other bands play which is really interesting. oh yeah it's such a such an amazing format for a show just to see everyone just kind of like hanging out chilling watching each other's performance and so it's something mm -hmm. be awesome if they brought to north america you know yeah. like just seeing all these people you yeah. know i remember when i got to play it um once with wild beasts and once with slate kinney and when i played it with wild beasts so the boys were really mad because they sat all of our girlfriends by the strokes <laughs> instead of by us <laughs> when they were playing like so you can see all our girlfriends in the background behind the strokes and not not behind us so so you're allowed yeah. to bring a crew of people, but they decide where they sit? <laughs> That's where they put them. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, we didn't know if it was coincidental, but it was like, oh, well, that's the last time we're going to see our girlfriends still. <laughs> I'll be off the strokes. It must be so weird to be, you know, growing up w watching these shows and then to all of a sudden be there playing them. Hugely, 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 hugely surreal. Yeah. Like, especially Jules Holland. I mean, I had enormous reverence for for david letterman and you know know the the legend of the beatles playing in that theater and stuff like that but it's not the thing i saw as a as a child mm -hmm. you know so mm -hmm. there's some um some real kind of uh mind-blowing you know when you you stepping into places like that yeah there's really no equivalency for in in america i guess saturday night live would be the closest thing to it but right you have to be like a superstar to get on that show, you know, and, and not that you don't have to be famous to get on Jules Holland, but I don't know. It just seems like there's uh you know, more of an ear to the ground by the producers or the music supervisors of that show. Well, also you've got five or six artists to show. Yeah, very true. You know, so the, the, your odds, your odds are higher and there is, and it's, it's deliberately like a more 
diverse lineup. You know, it's there's there's world music and traditional music, and there's all sorts of yeah. There's there's a different focus, which again, it's still it's still unachievable in a lot of ways for a lot of people um, because it's still a mainstream show. But yeah, of all the mainstream shows that exist, it has like a you know a. a a teenager might see out the driving on it, for example. Yeah, and it, this is going to sound ridiculous to say because obviously people love music all over the world, but music's place in pop culture in England I've found to be very different than other places I've visited in in the world. How so? Well, you know, like, and this is going to sound completely <laughs> like an outsider uh, looking in when I say this, I'm sure, but, <laughs> but I, I just feel like... You know, there's just certain bands and certain scenes that are more underground, mm. but like taken up in a, a more mainstream way there. And I don't mean like underground, underground kind of music, but I just mean like, you know, like a, a label like Wichita, mm. you know, like a label like Wichita and all those incredible artists. I don't know if that sort of label would have the same place in in America. I don't know if this is making any sense at all. Well, it? there's there's a few like physical considerations there's like the size of our country and the fact that we live on top of one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also being able to like the drinking age being 18 and the fact that like live music and the consumption of alcohol are inextricably linked worldwide, you know, uh, restricting people in North in America. What is it in Canada? Is it 19? It's 19, but it varies. Yeah. Like province to province a little bit. And then, and then 20, 21 in the States. And yeah. They're, they're being, you know, it, you know, I had already, when did that first record come out? I definitely started the band if the record wasn't released, you know, by before being 21. And that, that wouldn't have happened if I'd not had the access to the gigs that I had the access to. And mm-hmm. absolutely, um, you know, underage shows are essential. Um, but I I wonder if that's something that makes a big difference. Also, the fact that, you know, if you want to tour in the States or, you know, countries that are more spread out, Canada and Australia, like you have to be able to drive or have access to a vehicle or um, you have to have maybe been successful enough in your hometown to like make more of a noise to be able to get the press to, justify booking a whole west coast tour or something just like the the physical um stretches that you have to like overcome that would be my my counter theory what do you think about that yeah absolutely well you know better than i but um yeah i think what you're saying especially not about the drinking so much but the just the access to music exactly that's that's why i bring it up it's not it's not about the alcohol itself it's just about the age restriction yeah um and then yeah there being like the physical barrier to to overcome of like having to get to your next state which might be you know hours and hours rather than you know the cribs are from from wakefield which is 15 minutes away from from leeds really yeah um and and wakefield has its whole entire unique music scene yeah it feels like there's more you know close proximity uh regional identity or regionalisms geographically yeah, I mean, we've it's just, you know, it's a old country where we've been 
um, living on top of one another for a long time. It's like the number of insults there are in Britain, I think, is linked to that. Like there's a lot of English swear words or just like mild. We've just come up with lots of ways to insult each other. And, you know, you travel for 15 minutes in England and the accent is totally different. Yeah, definitely. Which, yeah. Yeah, it's like a different world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder if it's also, you know, like you mentioned with Jules Holland having to have five artists a week and the fact that there is like this, you know, heavy duty music media and a weekly music press, not, you know, as much now, but at the time that we're talking about and the fact that you had to fill all these pages each week, you would just wind up covering bands that might not get covered in other places with less media, you know, like the fact that you had like an on the radar section that would feature five completely unknown bands. Mm, maybe. I mean, it's so hard to say because like my instinct is always like, there's as much music going on everywhere. It's just people not paying the attention. Yeah, totally. Um, so yeah, the fact that, that, you know, you could go to the petrol station and get an enemy, which would have an article about some, like, cool feminist punk band, you know, from from just the gas station, you know. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty revolutionary, really. Well, yeah, because you could be walking around for days in Washington State, you know, where the gossip's from even, and you'd, you'd never find a magazine. Yes. With them on the cover. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, it's so strange to think of the things that are in our mainstream. I remember the first time I got to go to America was with my family when I was 16, and um, we went to New York, and I dragged my mum around until I could find a pair of Converse, because the Ramones wore Converse, and then I remember wearing them to school and then, and being teased for them being boys' shoes because there was a picture of the strokes on the six one common room wall that someone had put up and they had them on. And it's like <laughs> like oh. now you just think like like there's like rip off converse in like every grocery store clothes yeah. section. Yeah. Like things that were like punk rock signifiers that I got on my like international my first trip to America, you know, that that in terms of how um, influential punk rock has been in every part of mainstream culture like i think if i hadn't been teased for them i would have totally forgotten that like oh yeah like compass that was the thing that i saw out because of punk rock yeah strangely well, yeah well, would there be a jules holland with there, if there wasn't punk rock to kind of give squeeze that entryway to new wave totally it's totally it. It's it, we we seismic 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 eruptions. Um, I've kept you for a long time, and Katie, I could talk to you forever. This I, is great fun. <laughs> at some point, would you come back for a part two? Absolutely. But yeah. we're, we're not done Please. yet. If you've got a little more time, because there's some stuff I wanted to talk to you about. All, I'm not going anywhere. Okay. Like all the rest of us. <laughs> yes, that's the thing. Yeah. Now it's now everyone has to stay for the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, please keep talking to yeah. me. <laughs> um, but going back to Skylarkin, what were the kind of influences other than just moving to London and being really excited about music um, for the band? Mm. I mean, in terms of like. I just I remember hearing the guitar solo in Wrong Time Capsule by Dear Hoof and being like, that can be a guitar solo. <laughs> like that's the coolest thing. Like and another one of those bands that I've you know, I felt like there's a kind of Skylarkin were a three piece where I think one of the best compliments I ever <laughs> I remembered was like someone coming up to us at the end of the show and being like 
when I watch you guys play, it just feels like the wheels could fall off at any second. And that's the best thing about your band. <laughs> and I was like, thank you. Like we were just like punching above our weight in terms of our like technical ability to play mm -hmm. or like how much we could like cram into songs in some ways. Um, that, yeah, like, like that energy in, in that guitar set, I remember like ripping the top of my head off. Well, that, and that's like the, that's the genesis, I think, of this music and why this music is so powerful because it's like, it's all about young people picking up instruments and punching above their weight. Mm, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I was, um, I'm a self-taught guitarist. So, um, you know, I've, I've been lucky enough to, to collaborate with lots of other people, but I, part of what sort of anchored me into writing this solo record was like reminding myself, like anything I can offer other people is like because of something that I learned because I wanted to write songs like I taught myself to play guitar so that I could I could write songs you know that's where my knowledge comes from is from like hearing sounds and then trying to recreate them sorry a telemarketer is calling in the background <laughs> not everything in the world stops no no telemarketing <laughs> is still somehow I guess you can do that from home so maybe that's that industry <laughs> yeah. is still thriving and surviving oh yeah um but sorry about that um it's 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 such a um, I don't know like a powerful thing when you're a kid to hear something that you're like oh shit that can that I can do that like I could find my way to make that sound myself mm, yeah or just being like yeah so so blown away by something that was like recognizable and then yet totally like transcendent to be like well, I know that's like, that is coming from a guitar somehow. Like, I have no idea how, but like, that's a band with, you know, discernible members and instruments and they're just doing stuff with this combination of sounds that, and still like just the greatest band and talk about like punk rock, like, like tiny heads and like, you know, so they can, they can travel light with everything and like just fit in one van and, like that aspect of 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 punk is is still like it's very inspiring. Like you don't you don't need all the shit in the world to like blow people's minds. Yeah, like you're saying, like you can, you know, like pull the band together just because you want to make the music and let let everything else fall into place afterwards. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, and I, you know, I gotta say, still. I just remembered like, the fact that the last Skylark and show we ever played was at this um, like all day festival in Hull where like all our merch got stolen when we were on stage. Like it, it was really incredible that we got to, to like go to America and make three records. And it was with John Goodmanson, who then like was the person that introduced me to Slater Kinney. But like we still, <laughs> you know, we still got fucked over constantly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's like, there's no, I, I, it probably feels like, well, I know this, like you never make it. Like there's never a point where you're like, oh, right. fuck, I'm there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We didn't like, we didn't have like a triumphant last show. Like as it was, it was like, yeah, that, that last show in hell where somebody had stolen all our merch when we were on stage, it, it ended up being the last one, <laughs> unfortunately. Well, you mentioned, you know, the, how, you know, Meet, meeting Sleater Kinney, but do you remember the first time you heard Sleater Kinney? Mm, I don't know if I remember the, the first time I heard them, but I mean, I went to see them on my own in high school, you know, so the, the, uh, you know, the novelty is, is nowhere near lost on me. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's like, it's just so, oh, they're like such a definitive band. Like the, they're like one of the bands kind of emerged from, you know, underground music in the nineties. Um, and it must be like, it must be amazing going on those tours and just seeing like people, not like yourself at this point, obviously, because you know, you're in the (laughs) band, but I mean like people in the crowd that are like you were in high school coming up to see them. Oh, well, you know, one of the most moving things about that whole experience for me has been the fact that I can observe the crowd because I don't play on every single song in the set. So, you know, when you're on stage, you can see the you can see the audience, but you're also like concentrating on something else. But having those moments in the set when I would like stand to the side of the stage and like actually get to watch the crowd frequently some of the most moving experiences in, in live music for me you know I've seen every I remember looking out in Terminal 5 in New York and seeing like ev- the range of human emotion like people crying people having fist fights and then people like definitely more than just kissing are they going to get thrown out <laughs> like within like you know a sample size of 50 people in one part of the crowd you know just seeing the whole the whole range of human emotion happen and yeah it just shows the passion that that band can inspire fist fights oh yeah wow that's like <laughs> yeah. that would be the thing that would throw me off i think the most looking off that stage that. well it's it's usually like someone's stolen allegedly someone's taken someone's place while someone's gone you know it seemed again me being the kind of uh amateur um you know csi band fight the crowd fight like what's gone down here (laughs) and i guess it also speaks to that passion you're talking about like the fact that people are willing to like exchange blows over the fact that they are no longer a foot closer to the band (laughs) yeah yeah i mean i've i've i don't know if i've pushed anyone at a show i definitely have shushed people at gigs (laughs) yeah i've i've been i've shushed people again Always in London, always people in uh, gigs in London that are just stood there, like chatting through the quiet songs and just, just go, go to the bar, or go home. Uh, you also got to play on Saturday Night Live this year too, right? Uh, two, two thousand and Nine, yeah, two, I think 2000, I can't remember, 2018 maybe? Yeah, for a, a couple of years ago. What was that like? Because I guess you don't have the same relation to it. Like that to me would be, I guess, the Jules Holland for you. It's probably like, ah, it's just an American show. That was just totally surreal. And also has like a punk origin story in that um, I got to sing backing vocals for Dua Lipa when she performed on SNL. Um, Her musical director and drummer, or like was the drummer as well, um, Will was in a, a... a band called I was a Cub Scout who uh, Skylark and had the same manager. You know, we were they were teenagers as well. We were all little baby punks, and he's got on to to do loads of um, like pop drumming. And he uh, sent me sent me a message and and said, "Was I was I free?" Like, <laughs> yeah, as well. And but also it just speaks to his, you know, um. the group of women that he organized to do that you know we're all we were all independent musicians and one of them worked at like a a DIY venue in Brooklyn and you know he he definitely could have called from a professional pop realm but um 
yeah, found some independent mu- musicians and gave them a crazy gig. Well, it goes back to what you're talking about, I guess, earlier about the access and like the fact that all these young people, you know, the first kids you met in university and like, it's just amazing how all these people that were able to kind of make the music they were wanting to make wound up finding careers in this thing later in life. Yeah. Yeah. Again, like being a, a young punk, the worst insult that anyone can like hurl at you is 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 to be a careerist yes the worst Um, one (laughs) and you know and especially as being like a queer woman like the fact that um anyone would i don't know like find me being able to survive on my own terms as like something i could be insulted for Mm. um just like would speak to the uh sort of hypocrisy at work yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. And, and I, I think like that whole idea of being a careerist is born out of insecurity. Like I know when I would hurl that insult at bands, it was coming from the fact that I was insecure that I would not be able to do what they were able to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say I've ever been a careerist, but I've been like a creative survivalist and, yeah. um, that's, you know, we're all, as you say, it never ends. Yeah, exactly. And what's the, what's the alternative, right? Like, so you, you don't find a way to make a career in your passion and your art and you, you resent people that do because yeah. you were like, I don't want to be called a careerist. Like I can't have that on me. Well, It was always perplexing to me because I also was growing up with a generation of young men who had, had seen people pick up a guitar and write 10 songs and live off them for the rest of their lives. Whereas like, I don't, I don't know a young woman that would have picked up a guitar and, and felt the same level of entitlement, you know, mm-hmm. whereas I definitely had arguments with, with guys in Leeds who were, you know, really, really resentful that they were, they were 28 and not rock stars yet. And it's like, mate, what are you, what are you, what are you doing? Like, this is, this is so awful. <laughs> I mean, and I say rock stars, like in their terms of the word, which meant like, you know, just a that they could coast. I was like, that's not, that's not a goal. <laughs> like, let's just make more records and more records and more records. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like right from an early age, you had a pretty good understanding of what this industry actually was as opposed to them who I think are still caught up in the fantasy. Yeah, I guess, I guess my point is to say it's like a fantasy. I never felt entitled to have. Mm-hmm. So I never had it in a way that was probably helpful in the long term. And it sounds like a depressing way of putting it, but I think it's actually quite freeing. Oh, absolutely. And like, you know, you, you, you're like obviously very young still. Uh, I don't mean that in a patronizing way. Like I'm still very (laughs) young too, but at the same time, like you've had like this incredible career and you've done like so many unbelievable things. Like, as you say, it's creative survival, but also at the same time, it is a career. Like it is something that you, you can hang your hat on because you, you fucking did it yourself. Thanks, mate. That that means a lot coming from you. Well, I, I believe me, I have not done half the shit you have, so that means <laughs> well, a lot coming back from you. It's it's part of like you know why we ended up. My partner and I ended up starting a label to put my album out was because it felt like the right time to like you know she's a, a she's put on festivals and gigs and stuff her whole life, and she's also a poet. And we were people that felt like we've certainly benefited from being part of like a wider creative community and 
culture has felt like sort of emotional scaffolding for me my whole life and just getting to that point feeling like yeah it's it's time to like offer that support to other people um and I mean given what's going on in in the world right now you know a lot of people have asked me you know did you think about about putting the album back and I personally not not for a second because for me I didn't want to cut the channels of communication with people right now but there's also a lot of artists that don't have necessarily the liberty to choose that but because we own the label you know I started it to to give myself more creative freedom but I didn't realize how instantly that would come into play Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. but I don't know I just my heart breaks for how many artists there might be whose records have been shelved you know for years maybe who knows like you know you think about how many movies aren't happening you know people the industry has relied on touring and like movie and tv placements for the longest time so if you've got some movie placement that was paying for the record in the first place then maybe the the label's pushing it back as well and yeah it's just a very difficult time yeah, for everyone well and, and like you're, it's it's the punk kind of you know you have to do it yourself now because you, you can't be waiting for an industry to kind of step into the gulf and and do it because they might not be there yeah yeah and it's difficult like you know I've I've survived as a creative person through being able to tour um and obviously that's not an option for for anyone right now but it's also you know it's this crisis is exposing like what was wrong in lots of industries and the fact is like not everybody wants to or can tour constantly which had become the industry standard you know mm-hmm. when when everything comes back it's like why isn't there childcare? why aren't venues kid friendly you know there's 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 so many obstacles to um being able to spend more more time on the road that um you know maybe when we we rebuild this we rebuild it in a better image uh, yeah. And I like, this is definitely like a whole separate podcast, but to talk about like the, the, just like the, even in music and, and quote unquote rock star world, there's still like a real undervalue placed on what people's actual labor is like to go on tour, to leave your family, to leave your mm-hmm. life behind. Like, you know, like, yeah, it's better than a lot of situations you could be in. But like, I think a lot of people higher up in the music industry don't necessarily appreciate what they're asking people to do when they ask them to do that. Yeah, and that extends to, you know, honestly, like, pressure on people to be creative during lockdown, you know, during shelter in place, like, it's, it's not free time that people have been being given, you know, there's, there's, people are under incredible um, stresses and strains right now. And it's, you know, it's, it's just as damaging as the the myth of the depressed artist to, for people to be expected to be creative right now. No, a hundred percent. Well, this is like a real downer, <laughs> but Katie, anytime you want to come back, please know the door is always open because this Thank has been a so lot much. of fun. Thank you. Thank you, Katie, for coming on the show. And Katie will be back for a part two at some point in the future. And in the interim, check out her brand new, awesome solo record, Harkin. Uh, and speaking of future next week on the show, we have uh, a, a, a new buddy of mine, 
uh, from the band The Killers, not to be confused with The Kylers from Chicago, Ronnie Venucci is going to be on the show. And if you right now are thinking, you know, like, uh, how's someone from The Killers going to be on Turned Out of Punk? Well, you have not been paying attention because it all comes back to punk rock. And so tune in next week to hear Ronnie and I discuss all sorts of things from uh, no effects desert shows to playing in a ska band. But, but all that will be discussed next week on the show. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, thank you for supporting the show. Uh, please, everyone, stay safe right now. Uh, love, love and hug your family members if you're able to. Um, and, or if not, just call them if you're, if you're on speaking terms, of course. Uh, sign your organ donor cards. Give blood if you're able to give blood. Just I'm not, I'm not telling you what to do with your lives, but I'm just you know, making some suggestions. Uh, and, and make your own culture because anyone can do this shit. Um, and that's it. I will see you later on. Did I say next week on the show? Oh my God. Next episode on the show. This thing's going to be coming out like three or four days. Oh, it's a fun episode. You're going to like it. Trust me. Okay. Got to go.